In this episode of the Smart Community Podcast, I have a great chat with Stephen Coulter. Stephen tells us about his background in financial services, banking, and later startups, and now how the two have combined in his interest in smart mobility. We talk about smart cities being made up of a series of hyper-local communities and why it's not just technology but also psychology that we need to be looking at when preparing for and encouraging the changes that are coming whenever they happen cooperatively or disruptively. Stephen then shares with us some of the projects he's currently working on, including Local Lift, and why trust and seamless payment processes are so important in the smart mobility space. We discuss the concept of shared mobility and why it's an emerging trend not being talked about enough, despite the fact that it's an important part of the 21st century solution to the 20th century problem of congestion. As always, I hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed making it. Welcome to the smart community, smart regions, smart towns and smart cities. It's where we live, work and play with smart communities. The future starts today. Big data, smart mobility, emerging trends galore. The smart community podcast is what you're looking for. Hello, Stephen. How are you? I'm very well, Zoe. How are you? I am awesome. Let's jump straight in. And can you tell us about your background and what you're passionate about? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've worked a lot of my life in financial services and banking and for the last 10 or 15 years been consulting and doing startups. But what's always driven me is being focused on the customer and looking at the future and seeing what innovations I can bring to the the customers I'm dealing with, whatever industry that's been in. And the last four or five years, um, life has taken me down a mobility path. So I've become very passionate about the changes that are happening around the world in mobility and how I can bring some of my ideas and experiences from different industries to to land in mobility as well. Mm, Awesome. So what sparked your interest in the smart city space? Uh, I was doing some consulting and Back in banking, I've been in the digital space since the mid-1990s, so for the very early days of the internet. And because of that background and what I've done in that space, I was asked to come and consult to one of the major motoring associations at board level on digital trends around the world that were impacting on, on motoring and mobility. So it was out of that project, I was given a brief to really not look inside the organization, but to look around the world at all the things that were happening in mobility and how that might impact back onto um, a motoring association in Australia. But as we've seen through the work we've done, every motoring association in the world is facing similar challenges. They've become organisations around automobiles, quite literally, but their members are ageing and as a lot of your listeners would be aware, there's a lot of predictions that the use of the car will change dramatically. So a lot of the major motoring associations, whether you're looking at your RACVs or NRMAs or the AAAs in America, they're all looking at how to redefine themselves around mobility and offering their members a much broader range of mobility services rather than just simply roadside service and repairing cars when they break down, which of course happens far less than it used to. And as we move to new forms of mobility, people won't actually own the asset um, so they get their, they've got fantastic membership bases, all these motoring associations, but they need to look at how they 
bring new types of mobility services to them. Mm, definitely. So what is a smart city to you? I think a smart city starts with um, engaged and smart community because I, I don't think of a city as a single entity in itself. Living here in Sydney, uh, I'm involved in lots and lots of communities. I'm a, I'm a surf lifesaver at Manly, which is one community. I've got colleagues through work and projects I do. I've got family. I've got a whole range of activities that I'm involved in, and each of those has a community that um, and within those communities, there are there are friendships, there are social activities, but there's also often common um, common locations at common times that require you know, everybody to get to the same place at the same time, which drives mobility. And when I look at smart cities, it's these hyper-local communities that share something important to them in common and that overlap, that collectively make up cities. And I think if a city is really going to be a smart city and bring a lot of the changes we're all hearing about, you have to engage not only at the government levels but at those multiple community levels and also with businesses that are connected to these communities that bring all things, all these things together and have the ability to actually generate change because I don't think any one party in that equation can actually drive the change without the support of the others. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I think... Um you, yeah, you need a, a community to be able to drive the change, not just one single entity. And I think community, you know, encompasses that collaboration across, you know, the different areas because not, you know, a community isn't just a one, um, you know, one thought, one mindset. It's um, all different people from different backgrounds coming together. Um, so, yeah, I think that's really important. Absolutely. So why do you think that this smart city or smart community concept is so important? I think it's really important because it, it provides a really strong focus for people to come together around the issues which are driving some of the problems in cities and also to bring them together around the changes required and, and gives you a platform for to get that collaboration happening between the, the the many parties that are involved. And it's not just about you know, building technology or building new types of mobility, because that can be done, that just takes engineers. But as you know, my business and life partner Christina said, it's um it's technology and psychology that's needed to to drive change. So you need the parties coming together and you need to to look at what change is required and what behaviour change that's going to require in people, which is the hardest thing to do. And behaviour change doesn't happen overnight. You know, to make, to come up with a new behaviour, I think the, the trainers say it takes, you know, three or six weeks for a, for a behaviour to start to become a habit. And for those sort of things to happen, you need to have incentives and disincentives to encourage people to try something new and particularly when it comes to mobility and you're getting people to uh, maybe get out of the comfort of being in their driver-only vehicle, which is very comfortable, and even if there is traffic, they can they can do whatever they like in their own vehicle and feel very comfortable, but that's not the way of the future. If we're going to make cities more livable and reduce traffic, congestion and pollution. Mm. So how do you think Australia as a whole is embracing this smart city concept? I think we're at the very early stage here in Australia. I think that it's being talked about a lot. Um, the, it's good to see some government grants happening in the space, like the federal government grants that have happened the last 
couple of years. Um, I guess our perception is that it's 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 very early days, and we're in that we're at that transition from cities being managed the traditional way um, to what might be seen more as a 21st century way in managing cities and creating change. And so some of these grants, I think, are, are good, but I think cities have had their, their strategic plans in place for a number of years, and they really need to change more dramatically if we're going to get to a true smart cities situation. I, th- I look at you know one of our local issues. We've got um, a new bus rapid transit route happening near where we live in Sydney, and which is the bus itself is actually fantastic and works really well. But a car park is being built as part of the solution. And to me, a car park is a 20th century solution to a 21st century problem. We're, we're building a car park which will cost more than $20 million and only house 150 cars, which isn't going to have much of an impact on the number of commuters that catch this bus. That sort of money could be better spent looking at some of the more innovative first and last mile solutions that are starting to merge uh, emerge in cities around the world, which can drive a lot more behaviour change and convenience for a lot more people than a small car park that's only going to cater for a very small minority. Mm-hmm. That's one example, I think, of where we're still looking at um, 20th century infrastructure being built when we're looking at 21st century problems. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I agree. I'll put the link um, to your article in the show notes as well, because it's an interesting read. I'm keen to hear about what you're you're working on at the moment. So tell us um, about Local Lift and some of the projects and things you're currently working on. Okay, well, well, Local Lift started off with a vision around helping people um, with shared mobility by arranging lifts with people you know and trust. So we started off looking at these very hyper-local community groups um, uh, that you share common times and locations and activities with. So getting kids to school and sport, um, sharing lifts with colleagues to to work, sharing lifts with other people you share a social activity to a common thing. But what we and the most obvious use of that sort of technology is carpooling which is one of these areas where we think it requires a lot more change than, than just an application, and there's a, a lot happening in that space. And that's really driven us down a path of looking at what are the real barriers to, to shared mobility and to people doing more multimodal mobility because carpooling is only part of the solution, and there's a lot of new solutions emerging around the world, but again, a lot of them are focused on, on solo travel. So we're focused a lot more in the last 12 months around how to, how to how to manage trust when so people are more comfortable moving together and how to manage payments to make payments more seamless across all modes of transport because that's also a problem if people are trying to use these new forms of mobility and they don't have an account with one service and they do with another it makes it very difficult to actually seamlessly move across cities and Part of that also is um, making it easier for cities to incentivize the right behavior. If a city wants to get more people using mass transit, but the problem is getting people from their homes to the mass transit hub, other ways you can embed the last first and last mile um, mobility and the payment for it in the mass transit ticket, for instance, as an example, and things that can't really be done now. So 
And in, in the last 12 months, we've spent seven or eight months living in Mexico City, looking at some of the mobility issues over there, which, you know, funnily enough, are, are very similar to the issues we're facing in, you know, around in all the Australian cities, but on a, on a much bigger scale. And certainly in, in Mexico, there's a lot more fear about personal safety. So um, safety is a big issue in Mexico if you're on mass transit or really any forms of transit. So trust and, and payments are where we're focusing a lot of attention. And I think if we focus a little bit on trust first, most of the applications and services that, are, that talk about trust actually only talk about identity. Um, there's a number of the ride-hailing and other apps that will ask you to verify your identity with a driver's license or a passport or some form of identity card. Uh, which is good. It's the first, it's the, it's the, it's the ticket to the game, I guess, in terms of trust, but it doesn't prove you're trustworthy. At best, it proves you are who you say you are. But every criminal in the world will probably have a driver's license and a passport as well. And so it's a, a tick. Yes, you are who you say you are more than likely, but not trustworthy. So we've been looking, how do you go beyond that and find ways of identifying trust marks that indicate somebody is trustworthy to the point where you'd be happy to share some form of mobility with them, even if you haven't met them directly before. And some of the areas we're looking at in that space are around community trust, because as we've said a few times already, people belong to lots of communities in their life for different purposes, and they tend to have stronger relationships with people in those shared communities, even if they haven't met them directly. Um, whether it's parents for, of children at the same school or in the same class at school or the same sports club or people that work for the same company. There are lots of these communities that you, there are tools you can now use to authenticate that people do share that common community, which therefore gives them, um, not a definitive measure of trust, but a measure of, tr that says there's, they've got something in common that can help them form a trusted relationship together with other forms of trust like identity and things like that. So community we think is really critical in moving forward and that's going to affect all, all sorts of industries, not just mobility. And the other areas of trust that people do trust um, have put the greatest level of trust in is peer-to-peer -peer trust. So the best trust is that you and I know each other personally, Zoe, so we, we know each other, we know history Therefore, we can, we, we have enough trust of each other to do activities together. But it might be that, um, I've got some friends you haven't met, but because you know me and trust me, um, that link of trust is, is a, is a form of peer to peer trust that can help you meet other people to share activities with, such as mobility that give you um, a higher level of trust than a, than a total stranger. So we're looking at literally, there, there are tens, if not hundreds, of these types of trust marks that you can identify and find and and provide authentication of to show that people really are who belong to those communities or have those peer relationships. And together with algorithms and data science, you can bring that together to give some really um, much stronger measures of trust than only identity that you can then share digitally to give people reasons to share activities, whether it's mobility or to find a, a dog sitter or a babysitter or something to provide high levels of trust with online dating or all sorts of things where you're, where an initial relationship that begins online or in an app ends up with physical contact that um, 
implies that there may be a risk there unless you can manage the trust aspects. So trust is a really fascinating area that's there's a lot happening around the world that we think there are some interesting solutions for that can provide um, a lot more incentive for people to to share their mobility as well. Trust is like um, trust. Trust removes friction from relationships. If trust people trust each other, they're more willing to do things, and things will happen faster and and more easily. Mm, interesting. Yeah, I think that. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I can see it now, like um, an app or something that would have, you know. You know Stephen, this person also knows Stephen, um, this person's part of these communities that you're also a part of. Would you like to, you know, share a ride with them or whatever? Exactly. And we and we think rather than it being necessarily an app, it'll be it'll be it's one of these collaborations where lots of organizations need to collaborate because there are different mm. types of trust marks out there already. Of course. And if you can share them, it's it's a common framework that can be del- delivered to in any application or to any website rather than it being just one app doing it by itself. Mm, so it's a framework um, that other apps, for example, you know, um, carpool apps or um, dog sitting apps or whatever um, would be using uh, so then could create that trust. And possibly contributing to. Yeah, yeah, contribute to as well, yeah. If you look at say ride hailing and you look at uber you know drivers and riders have scores and they're that that's one type of indicator of trust again not something that says somebody is trustworthy in isolation but those sort of scores together with a whole lot of other things can help people get to a a more trustworthy position and the same with you know an airbnb now you have properties and people have ratings from having used those so there's Lots of industries and activities where things are happening, but they're all very isolated. Mm. Yeah, cool. Well, I think that kind of leads on to this next question about integration. So how do you think that we can better integrate across these different disciplines? Um, you know, government industry, um, I think exactly what you're talking about with trust is really important in this. So I'm keen to hear your thoughts. I think the other really important thing that we think is going to be required to drive some of the changes in mobility is is a smarter approach to payments and making payments more seamless and integrated across all forms of mobility. We're seeing lots of things, uh, new forms of mobility happening, particularly in the, that first and last mile we've mentioned already, such as on-demand vehicles and bike share and scooter share and car sharing and um, private other private operators all coming into that space. But each of them tends to bring their own um, payment system with it and you have to join them, which makes it difficult. So you've not only got a payments issue, you've got a, an interoperability issue. And, and we think that if we're going to make it easy for people to travel from literally door to door for the entire journey from their home to their office or whatever the activity is, you need to have be able to at least position it to the user as a single fare that covers every transport operator they're going to use along, along that path. So we're looking at ways, I guess, going back to our banking background about how payments can be integrated and aggregated, if you like, to make it simple for me to say I need to get from Manly in, Sid- in Sydney to to North Ride 
and I'll have an a journey planning app that tells me I need to do my walking and cycling and ferries and buses or trains, whatever. But it shows me the entire journey. You can give me a single price for the entire journey that makes it easy for me to pay. And along the way, if I'm going from walking to using a share bike or a private ferry or mass transit, the one application can manage my fare to those operators without me having to fund and pay all of them separately. So there are ways of delivering a solution for that problem which we're actively working on. And I think those sort of things also play to the the psychology part of behaviour change. If people are going to use these things, there need to be incentives. There needs to be um, pricing levers that can be pulled that say, if I'm going to be using mass transit but use a, an on-demand shuttle for the first two or three kilometres, that that on-demand that on-demand shuttle is included in my mass transit ticket or there's a cross-subsidy that makes it simple for somebody to do these things. Likewise, if you know, if people are sharing mobility in a carpool, how do you how do you incentivize that by enabling rebates of freeway tolls to people doing shared mobility from carpooling compared to drive alone people? Or if somebody gets to a mass transit car park, how do you give the people carpooling to that car park a better pricing proposition than someone driving and taking up a car space with nobody else in the car. And by leveraging payments, which are a lot more than just a function, there's there's a whole lot of strategic capabilities you can do with payment systems. You can provide ways to in- incentivize that behavior through various carrots and sticks and not rather than just adding together all the payments into one large sum. Yeah, cool. So bringing together the trust and payment aspect of, um, you know, having that seamless mobility. I think so. And that, yeah, the trust plays into that as well. If you have this trusted identity, can you make it easy for someone to do a car share or do a bike share, even if, even if they haven't used that operator before? Um, you know, both those services are great, but they're not always instantly on, you can't always join them instantly. Car share can take up to a couple of days if they're doing driver's licenses and other checks. But if you're carrying around a digital credential that says you have a driver's license and you've got a a good driving record, you should be able to hire a car instantly, even if you haven't had a relationship with that company before. If you've got a digital credential that says you have the right skills required to hire that car and you have the right payments capabilities to pay them and guarantee payment as well. So we see those things in many cases working hand in hand to give much easier interoperability than what exists now. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, I think that kind of leads to this next question about integration. Um, so a lot of people are going to have to come together uh, to collaborate on this. So let's talk about how do you think we can better integrate across different disciplines, government and industries? I think the focus on smart cities is bringing people around the table to talk about these issues. So it's simply having smart cities as a, as a concept with a lot of evidence starting to emerge around the world is one, one way to get that happening. And I, I think the governments have to be some of the leaders in that, in that area because they are heavily subsidizing forms of transport now and it's in their interest for private businesses to come along and to provide infrastructure instead of government to enable all forms of mobility in the city to work better together. And we're starting to see, you know, a number of operators 
talking to governments more actively, and it's, it either comes about from, I guess, a cooperative approach, which is great, it can sometimes be slower, but we've also seen the disruptive approach of ride-hailing, um, particularly you know, your, your Ubers and equivalents around the world, where their approach has firstly been to come into a city and offer the service without necessarily going through the normal government channels, but that's then made it into a very significant issue for cities, which has got the cities and your mobility operators sitting around the table and laws changing quicker than they probably would have otherwise because people like Uber have demonstrated how they can deliver a better service than traditional taxis, but it does require legislative change. Um, but by taking that disruptive approach, I think we've probably had more change happen than would have happened without that approach being taken. And we're seeing similar things, I think, with bike share and scooter share. And yes, they're causing lots of problems, particularly the dockless systems with the bikes and scooters potentially littering cities. But they're also they're now bringing, making those issues that regulators and, and the companies are looking at far more closely. And you're now seeing cities like San Francisco and New York putting putting much better regulations and caps around the number of share bikes or scooters or ride-hailing vehicles that can be in those cities that can better help manage some of the issues we've seen happen when it's totally unregulated and disruptive to begin with. Mm. I'm keen to hear your thoughts about emerging trends because um, I think some of the things you just discussed are, are some of those. So what do you think um, that people aren't talking about enough? I still think shared mobility isn't being talked about enough there are there are a few groups around the world that have that in their brief but when you look at most of the mobility trends that are happening they're still about the technology and they're still about getting these autonomous vehicles out there or getting the bikes or scooters or how are we going to do ride hailing etc and it, the, the problems around the world in congestion are, are very common from city to city and the solution is is on the road Already in many cases, you've got literally millions of driver-only vehicles in cities every day with you know, 80% of their seats empty. If we could you know, get people starting to share their mobility with the cars that are already on the road, with the drivers that are already happen happy to drive them, we can get significant change very quickly without infrastructure spend. But unless we start looking at how to get people more comfortable with travelling together, in the autonomous future, we're simply going to end up with everybody having their own autonomous vehicle and even more vehicles on the road, but just with single single occupants rather than driver only. So I think, you know, how do we get people down that sharing path is going to be really important and trust is one element of it. But there's also the fact that lots of people are simply quite comfortable and they like traveling alone. They can have the music blaring. They don't need to make conversation. You know, I've, I've driven past people in in cars, in, in morning traffic, putting their makeup on or they've got their breakfast laid out on the seat next to them. There's all sorts of activities happening in cars that people like to do because they're travelling alone. It's the break between home and work and work and home at the end of the day. So there's big behaviour change, but how do you start How do you start that change? And so trust is one part of it. There are other things that the buzz term we've heard around the world is, is detour tolerance. Now, people, if they are going to share, they don't have a lot of tolerance for going too far out of their way. So how do you actually start managing that and having better technology that can manage that detour tolerance to within acceptable limits so people aren't going to be losing 
15 or 20 minutes by helping someone else someone else out. If it's only five minutes, you will get a lot more sharing happening. Um, how can governments work and make it easier for people to pick up and drop, drop off people by having, you know, safe and designated pick up and drop, drop off areas along busy routes that make it easier for those things to happen? There's a lot of stuff starting to happen in that space as trust is important, but equally important is detour tolerance and safe pick up and drop offs that are convenient to everyone. Mm. Yeah, definitely. So sharing, I think, isn't talked about enough. It's a, it's a known issue, but most of the solutions are still predominantly focused on solo travel and engineering of new types of vehicles. Yeah, I, I agree. I think shared, um, even not even just shared mobility, but the shared economy, um, the more we share, the more we can utilize our resources more efficiently um, and how how we're going to do that like you said, with behaviour change and, and that kind of thing because, yeah, people um, are comfortable, you know, driving by themselves and um, and it might seem like that's the only option for them. But if we start opening up some of that information that's available, or well, that, you know, collect the information so that we can open up what's available and, you know, if it's within their detour tolerance and, you know, it's going to save them a lot of money, time and effort, then, um, you know, you've got to start somewhere. And I think that's definitely, I think, in um, the shared space, uh, we're only just at the very start of it. So yeah, in Australia anyway. Absolutely. Mm. Cool. It's been so awesome to chat with you, Stephen. Um, I'm glad that we met in person um, in Sydney the other week and. Um, I'm glad that you could come on to the podcast. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me, Zoe. It's been great. Awesome. Now, I only have one last question, which is how can people connect with you? Um, They can drop me an email, stephen at locallift.net, or find me on LinkedIn. They're probably the the two easiest ways to to initially connect. And, And love to hear from people because we're really focused on finding partnerships and connections to make this happen because it's a, we can, we, can see a lot of things happening in the future, but it's going to require lots of us working together to make them happen. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Well, we'll put the links in the show notes and um, people can click away and connect with you. Fantastic. Thanks, Zoe. Thanks. Talk again soon. Okay. Cheers. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Smart Community Podcast. Show notes for this episode and all other episodes are available on our website, mysmart.community. If you have any questions for us or any of our guests, you can email hello at mysmart.community or find us on the socials. We are on LinkedIn, Facebook and Twitter at smartcompod. That's com with two M's. If you are enjoying the podcast, please leave us a rating and review at wherever you listen. This really helps us reach more ears, so thank you in advance. As always, I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed making it. The Smart Community Podcast is what you're looking for.